This is the Pick Your Poison podcast. I'm your host, Dr. JP, and I'm here to share my passion for poisons in this interactive show. Will our patients survive this podcast? It's up to you and the choices you make. Today's episode is called Love Hurts. If you're interested in aphrodisiacs, if you want to know what EKGs have to do with mustaches and what toads have to do with Van Gogh, then stay tuned. Our patient today is a 25-year-old man who comes to the emergency department complaining of vomiting and diarrhea. The nurse pulls you into the room saying, doctor, this patient looks terrible. He needs to be seen quickly. And the patient doesn't look good. He's sitting on the stretcher. His skin is pale and sweaty. His heart rate is 40 beats per minute, which is low. And his blood pressure is 90 over 60, also low. His breathing and oxygenation are normal. He denies any history of medical problems and says he doesn't take any medicines. He denies any attempt at committing suicide. The nurse starts an IV and gives him some IV fluids. So question number one in today's interactive podcast is, which of the following tests is the quickest for giving us a clue about what is poisoning our patient? Answer A, an EKG, or answer B, lab testing. Suddenly, the cardiac monitor beeps wildly, and our patient collapses back into the bed and passes out. What the hell just happened to our supposedly normal, healthy patient? If you chose option A, an EKG, you have a valuable clue about what has happened. Choice B will give you the answer, the correct answer, and it'll give you a more definitive answer than the EKG, but it'll take at least an hour to get the results back, and that's time we don't have to wait. So to figure out what's going on with the patient, let's review what we know. He's complaining of vomiting and diarrhea. These are incredibly common complaints in the emergency department. Sometimes they do indicate emergencies or life-threatening conditions, but in healthy people, it's often something as basic as a stomach virus. There is a red flag in this case, though, and that's the patient's low heart rate. People with vomiting and diarrhea can become dehydrated, and that can lower the blood pressure. But again, in a healthy patient, the body will attempt to compensate for the low blood pressure with a fast heart rate. So we should be really concerned about the low heart rate and suspicious that it's being caused by something extraneous, i.e. a poison. This is a poison podcast, so let's not waste time and let's get right to the toxicological causes of a slow heart rate or bradycardia in medical terms and low blood pressure, hypotension. So there are four big categories, and the first three are caused by drugs, specifically calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, and alpha blockers. These are medicines you may have heard of like clonidine, Norvasc, atenolol, metoprolol, and all of these drugs are used to treat high blood pressure. So the patient doesn't have high blood pressure, and he's just told us that he didn't try to commit suicide. So what are the odds that he took somebody else's medication? Pretty low. Before we get to the fourth category, let's take a detour for some fascinating facts. Remember the scene in the movie The Wedding Crashers where they put eye drops in someone's drink to cause diarrhea? Fact or fiction? Eye drops cause diarrhea. This is fiction. One of the ingredients in Visine is tetrahydrosoline. It's very similar to clonidine, which is one of the drugs we just mentioned that's used to treat blood pressure. So if you put Visine in somebody's drink, what you get is a low heart rate, low blood pressure, and a depressed mental status. In fact, if you put enough in, the patient might become unconscious. And we know these facts 
thanks to school cafeteria pranks and malicious spouses. So back to our patient. Could this be tetrahydrosoline? Did somebody put visine in his drink? It might have been on my list, except for the lethal arrhythmia now racing across the heart monitor. Ventricular tachycardia is its name, and basically, the two biggest chambers in your heart, the ventricles, are twitching rather than pumping in an organized fashion. And this means blood and oxygen aren't circulating, which means your heart, lungs, and brain won't be functioning in the next few seconds or minutes. You put your fingers on the patient's neck to check for a pulse. No pulse. The nurse starts CPR. What's the first thing you do in a code? Something I learned in medical school. Check your own pulse first. In other words, calm yourself down so you can run the code. Your panic attack isn't going to help this patient. So as you take a deep breath, try to slow down your own heart and figure out what to do next. Another nurse puts defibrillator pads on the patient's chest and asks if you want to shock him. If you chose option A, the EKG, you'd be considering an antidote rather than just standard CPR and advanced life support measures. So what did the EKG show? It shows a classic swooping line in the shape of Salvador Dali's mustache. If you want to see what this looks like, check out the video podcast on YouTube or go to our website at pickpoison.com where I've posted a picture. This classic sign on the EKG means the patient has been exposed to digoxin or a digoxin-like substance. So what's digoxin? It's a drug used to treat atrial fibrillation and congestive heart failure. It's a very old medicine. Its first official publication was in 1785 by an English physician named William Weathering, and he described its use for the treatment of dropsy. Dropsy is the old-fashioned word for edema, the swelling that accompanies congestive heart failure. And heart failure is when the heart isn't pumping strongly enough, so fluid backs up in the body, first in the lung, the legs, excuse me, then as it becomes more severe, the lungs. But digoxin's effectiveness was noted by medical practitioners even earlier than that, and it has a long history of use as an herbal remedy. The reason for this? It's a naturally occurring compound found in the beautiful foxglove plant. So why would our young, healthy patient take digoxin? Great question. But given that he's pulseless with a lethal arrhythmia, we should treat first and ask questions later. The good news is that there is an antidote for digoxin toxicity, and the brand name of the antidote is Digibind. The medicine works how it sounds. It's an antibody to the digoxin molecule, which binds to the drug and inactivates it. This brings us to question number three. Give the digoxin antibody? Choice A, yes, give it immediately. Choice B, hold on, just wait a minute. Don't give it because we don't know if he actually took digoxin. If you administered the antidote, good choice. The patient is still alive. If you decided to wait, CPR and advanced life support fail and you have to pronounce a 25-year-old man dead. Oftentimes, in toxicology, and quite frankly, even emergency medicine, we don't know what is the cause of the patient's illness. We haven't had time for testing or test results to come back. So both ER doctors and toxicologists have to weigh the risks and benefits of treatment options without knowing for certain if the treatments are the right ones. In this case, if we weigh the risks and benefits of the digoxin antibody, the scales are tipped firmly in favor of administering it. The reason for this is because there's basically no harm in giving it. If he hasn't taken any digoxin, the medicine will circulate around in his bloodstream and eventually be eliminated by his kidneys. 
that's that. On the other hand, if you give it, and if you're right, as we suspect that the patient's been exposed, we can potentially stop this life-threatening arrhythmia, get rid of the lethal quantities of digoxin, and save the patient. So you tell the nurse to give 10 vials of digoxin antibody while we continue CPR and our usual advanced life support medicines. And in a few minutes, the arrhythmia stops, the patient has a pulse, and he even wakes up. Furthermore, his heart rate is now in the 70s, and his blood pressure is almost back to normal. So what happened to this patient? Now that he's awake, we can ask some more questions. He continues to deny ingestion of any drugs. He says he had no intention of hurting himself. So we ask important questions in toxicology. First, we ask about over-the-counter medicines and then supplements. Patients often aren't very forthcoming with these medicines. Very commonly, they assume that over-the-counter substances are safe, and they assume that supplements are all natural and therefore non-toxic. In addition, they might fear judgment by medical practitioners for using quote-unquote alternative medicine. But we know that all natural doesn't mean non-toxic. Take cocaine and opium, for example. Both are all natural. And supplements can contain compounds of any sort. The FDA, as you know, I'm sure, regulates drugs for quality control and enforces strict rules about prescribing. The supplement industry, however, is not regulated. It isn't overseen by the FDA. And this means that things can be found in supplements that aren't supposed to be there. So after some gentle encouragement, the patient finally admits that he did take a supplement that he bought at a bodega in his neighborhood. He says he took an aphrodisiac called Rock Hard. It was a large square pill, which he had difficulty swallowing. At this point, the astute toxicologist knows what's going on. Digoxin-like substances have been found in aphrodisiacs, variously called Jamaican lovestone, rock hard, blackstone, and chansu. So question number four, other than digoxin pills and foxglove plants, where can digoxin-like substances be found? A, in other plants. B, in toads, C, in humans, D, fireflies. The correct answer, all of the above. Cardenolides are digoxin-like substances found in plant sources, so foxglove, oleander, lily of the valley, Siberian ginseng, to name a few sources. Bufodenolides are derived from animal sources like bufo toads and, interestingly enough, fireflies. And humans have naturally occurring endogenous dig-like substances in low quantities. So rock hard and similar aphrodisiacs contain poison excreted by bufo toads. These are also known as cane toads, and they're an invasive species in Australia and other parts of the world where they don't have any natural predators. Sadly, there are many reports of dogs dying after eating the toads. And somebody, somewhere, decided the toad venom would work as an aphrodisiac. According to the internet, one of the toxicologist's most reliable resources, these square-shaped pills are meant to be rubbed on the male external genitalia. That's right, rubbed on and not ingested. Apparently, rubbing just the right amount leads to tingling and prolonged performance. Too much leads to burning and complaints from female partners about intravaginal burning. Sometimes the pills are sold in bodegas or gas stations without instructions, or the instructions might be written in a language that's different from the patient's, Chinese, for example. This leads to confusion, ingestion, and unfortunately, death. So digoxin is a fascinating topic, and it's a great example of a 
classic toxicology aphorism. To paraphrase Paracelsus, one of the fathers of modern toxicology, the dose determines the poison. So digoxin in therapeutic doses can treat heart failure and atrial fibrillation, but in overdose, it can be lethal. So how does digoxin work? It increases calcium inside the heart cells, and increased calcium makes muscle contraction stronger. The heart is basically just a big muscle, and this is why it helps with congestive heart failure in patients whose hearts aren't squeezing enough thanks to damaged muscle. But increase the calcium too much, and the muscles start contracting chaotically, i.e. fibrillating. The heart has to relax, fill with blood, then squeeze to pump the blood and oxygen to the body. If it's fibrillating, then there's no time for relaxation, which means no blood is circulating, which means not enough oxygen is being carried to the body and the brain, and ultimately the heart itself. So back to our case, the patient has several recurrent episodes of ventricular tachycardia. Each time, you give additional doses of digibind. And after 48 hours, his symptoms finally stop. He's discharged from the hospital with no sequelae. This is a fictional case, as are all our cases to protect the innocent, but it is based on real poisonings that have occurred periodically. One of the first published reports has come from the New York City Poison Center in the 1990s. Ingestion of an aphrodisiac with bufotoad venom resulted in the death of four otherwise healthy 20- and 30-year-old men. One man who was given digibind after recognition of his symptoms survived. This illustrates how the root of exposure influences poisoning. Had our patient rubbed it on his groin rather than ingesting it, at worst, he'd have experienced a local irritation, not life-threatening systemic toxicity. And it raises the always fascinating topic of aphrodisiacs and how far patients are willing to go for bigger and better sex. The word aphrodisiac is derived from Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Aphrodisiacs have a very long history, extending, I'm sure, from the dawn of mankind, but at the very least to the beginning of recorded history. Some things like chocolate and oysters we've all heard of, but other more adventurous things have been tried over the course of human history. Things like bird's nest soup, cobra's blood, baboon urine, ambergris, which is sperm whale vomit, caterpillar fungus, gladiator's sweat, and the penis and testicles of just about every animal, including bulls and tigers. I don't know about you, but that list is way more likely to put me in the wrong mood than the right one. Our patient was one of the lucky few who survived ingestion of poisonous toad secretions. One other lesson here is to be skeptical about products touting health benefits sold in such non-medical settings as bodegas or gas stations. I hope you made the right choices today and kept our patient alive. We've arrived at the last question in today's interactive podcast. We discussed what digoxin has to do with Salvador Dali's mustache, but what does it have to do with another famous artist, Vincent van Gogh? And specifically, what's the potential relationship between digoxin and his famous painting, Starry Night? Post your answers on our Twitter feed at pickpoison1, and I'll post the answer in the next 24 hours. Finally, thanks for your attention. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making the podcast. It helps if you subscribe, leave reviews, and or tell your friends. Also, please leave your comments. I love to hear from listeners. All the episodes are available on our website at pickpoison.com, Apple, Spotify, or any other location where podcasts are available. 
Our Facebook and Instagram pages are both at PickPoison1, and additional sources like references, photos, and EKGs are available on the website along with a transcript. Please remember that while I'm a real doctor, this podcast is fictional and meant for entertainment and educational purposes, not medical advice. If you have a medical problem, please see your primary care provider. Thank you. Until next time, take care and stay safe.